0: Well, good evening again, and welcome to our Bible study here in the middle of the week. We're nearing the end of our study of the Ten Commandments. I've enjoyed it a great deal and learned a lot. I hope that you have as well. We have tonight and next week, and we'll wrap up. So we're going to be looking at the Ninth Commandment this evening, which tells us you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, or some translations put it, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So the idea literally is about testifying in in a court of law that would be the most uh, strict um, meaning of the commandment. But as we've seen with all of them, it expresses a larger principle that has to do with the communication or telling of the truth versus that which is false. That would be the broadest application. And then specifically how we speak about others, perhaps God and how we speak about our fellow man and then primarily and ultimately how we would speak about them when legal matters are at stake. So all of that is in play and I hope that we can tease that out as we work our way through tonight. Again, thank you for joining us. And again, the law of God commands us, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor because our great commandments are that we love the Lord, our God, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And I know this much about you. I don't know everything about you, but I know enough about you to know that you don't like it when people say things about you that aren't true. And especially if they say something negative or harmful about you, harmful to your reputation, harmful to your financial situation, harmful perhaps for even your freedom or life in the world. If it's a criminal case uh, against you, it would be something that you would take very seriously. And so if we want others to speak the truth about us, then we must love our neighbors as we love ourselves, Jesus teaches. I want us to understand as we really launch into this study that trust, trust is essential to all community. If there's going to be a a society, a, a gathering of people who are able to function well together, that trust is at the heart of what's necessary for that to happen. And false witness makes trust impossible. If you can't trust what other people are telling you, you can't have community. You can't have fellowship. You can't have society. In any culture or society in which truth begins to become something that people play fast and loose with, that culture, that society, that community is in big trouble and certainly in decline. And I think that that's one of the things that we're struggling with today. People's word is not their bond. We have to sign uh, innumerable legal documents anytime we transact business because people look for every way that they can to, to back out of deals or to get around what's right, or to communicate that which is False, And so, all kinds of measures have to be put in place because people are prone to not communicating truthfully. And again, that gets to the very principle that this commandment has at heart, but it goes on. I want to go on and and make the point that all evil in our world began when Satan gave false testimony about God and Eve believed it. What you think about that? There was a time when God created the world and all was very good. And then Satan came along, and this is really maybe the the first sin, the first evil that creeps into our world. And that evil essentially was Satan slandering or bearing false witness about God to Eve, and Eve fell for it. Eve believed the slander about God. And everything that's been painful, everything that's been um, harmful in your life, can ultimately be traced back to this original evil in our world. That's how serious bearing false witness and believing false witness can actually be. Let's dive in a little bit closer to the story and see how that happened, because I think it's, it's something that lays a, a framework for the way we fall for deception and the way false witness is often uh, committed. The scripture says, beginning in chapter 3 in verse 1 of Genesis, that the serpent was more crafty, okay? He's cunning, he's full of guile and deceit, and he crafts speech in such a way as to deceive. And you know, that's what all false speaking really is about, it's, there's the way that reality is, is, the way that things actually are, there's the truth, and then comes along an agent that has free will and imagination and a desire for the world to be a different way than it actually is, for the situation to be something than it is. And so we craft a deception. We come up with, we cook up a, a lie. And Satan taking the form of the serpent was more craft and isn't a serpent, the perfect animal for Satan to embody in order to accomplish this primal deception, because snakes are cunning. Snakes are sneaky, and they're all of a sudden there when you didn't see it before. And that I think is, is part of uh, why he chose this method or this kind of embodiment to express this deception. And he's more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now think about that. This is genius in terms of his craftiness. Is it really true, Satan says to Eve, what I've, what I've been hearing? And that, that is that God made this world full of abundantly good things, but he won't let you have any of it. You can't eat from any of the trees of the garden. And Eve said, no, that's that's not exactly correct. We can eat from any of the trees in the garden. But God did say, see, he's led her to this point. You must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. And so by the way that he phrased the question and got her to respond by thinking about it, he leads her to the place where she is thinking that even though what he said at the beginning wasn't quite accurate now she's at the end of her response focused on the one thing in all of creation that she is forbidden to enjoy we're not supposed to eat or then she adds even touch the fruit of this tree or we will die and now with her focus on what she is forbidden to enjoy Satan's ready to come in and flatly contradict God with these words. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman for God knows, and this is where the false witness, the false accusation, the slander against God really takes root for God knows that when you eat from, from it, from this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. You see, God's not telling you the truth. God's a liar. That's what Satan says. And the reason that he's forbidding you from, uh, to, to, to partake from this particular tree is not because it's harmful to you. That's not the case. It's because it's the best tree. And you see, God, yeah, he's given you all these other things that you say you can enjoy, but he's keeping back from you the very best thing. He wants to keep that for himself. You see, God is stingy. God will share the junk with you, but the special tree he's keeping for himself. And in doing this, Eve begins to doubt the goodness of God. Satan knows that he can't cause her to doubt his existence, but he can cause her to think, well, maybe he doesn't really have my best interest at heart. And so Satan slanders God. He bears false testimony against God, and Eve believes the lie of Satan, and that unleashes the evil in the world that you and I still experience to this day. And so this breaking of trust with God fractures the world and it fractures man's relationship with God and our relationship with one another, and everything begins to deteriorate from this point. And again, all the pain and suffering, death. The sorrows, the problems that we experience in life are traceable to the fact that someone slandered, someone bore false witness about God and someone else listened to it and believed it and acted on it. That's how serious uh, giving false testimony or receiving false testimony actually is. And we know that people do this for a variety of reasons. Now, Satan perhaps had his reasons, but let's focus for a little while tonight on why do people give false testimony about each other, whether in a courtroom or whether just in talking with their neighbors or on the phone with their typical gossip. Why do people do this? Well, there's more reasons than this, but I want to focus for a little bit on three reasons why people give false testimony and false accusations about each other. The first is because of malice. We're angry. We have in our hearts some hatred of another person. Maybe it's because of something wrong they've done to us or that we perceive them to have done to us. For whatever reason, we just don't like them. And so we want to hurt them in some way and there's no more readily available means for us to do harm to another person than to think up some deception that we can spin about them that will be harmful to their character or their reputation not their character but their reputation or hurt them in in some other way. And so we do that. And and that's exactly what we see in one of the early stories in the Bible about a woman by the name of Potiphar's wife. We don't know her actual name, but she was married to a powerful man in Egypt by the name of Potiphar. And you may remember that it was Potiphar's house that Joseph had been sold as a slave into when his brothers uh, betrayed him. And so he's functioning in Potiphar's household and he's uh, managing his household and everybody loves Joseph because everything he touches just prospers. And he's also a good looking guy, a young man, we're told in in scripture. And so it's not surprising that Potiphar's wife began to notice Joseph. And the scripture says she cast longing eyes at Joseph. And when she had opportunity, she began to seek uh, to seduce Joseph. She said to him, lie with me. But Joseph refused to to do her bidding and, and kept himself pure from defiling himself with her. But it says that one day he went into the house to attend to his duties. And none of the household servants was inside. And she caught him by his cloak, by his robe. And she said, come to bed with me. But he left the cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. I don't know what all the reasons are why Joseph ran, but he decided that this was not something to try to reason through. The moment had come for him to make a decisive move and he just split. And she held on to that cloak that she had in her hands when she was trying to seduce him. And so, she's left with this in her hand. He's gone outside and as the As the saying goes, hell hath no fury like the wrath of a woman scorned. Well, she feels scorned and there's malice in her heart and she begins to think, what can I do to get even with this young man who has uh, not, um, who's rejected me? And so it says in verse 13 that when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and he had run out of the house, she called her household servants. So she lifts up her voice and she begins to, to holler. And she says, look, this Hebrew who has been brought to us to make sport of us has come in here to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me. He he attacked me rather than the way it actually was, but I screamed and when he heard me scream for help he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. So this isn't the way that it happened, but she wants to get even. She has malice in her heart. And so she comes up with a story that she knows is going to harm Joseph. And so she begins to bear false witness, make false accusations against her neighbor in order to justify herself and harm him. And that's one of the reasons that people do this kind of thing. Now, we're living in a time which we're told you always believe the victim. And many times, in fact, the vast majority of the time, the victim is telling the truth. But the scripture teaches us not only by stories like this, but in explicit commandments and case laws that are developed uh, in both Old and New Testament that in order for an accusation to be received as truth, it must have corroborating evidence, multiple witnesses. The accuser um, must be willing to uh, face some cross-examination and and stand before the the accused has the right to stand before the accuser. All of these kinds of things are not just American constitutional uh, law. These are also things that are rooted in biblical precedent. And so while our blood should boil at any at any uh, person who has actually committed a, a sexual crime against a woman or against a child or against any person, that's serious, serious. And certainly the accusation warrants careful consideration and investigation. But we must both personally reserve the... Um, a c- conviction of a person who's been charged and certainly legally until the biblical evidence that's required has been met and the person can be proven to have actually committed the crime. What if Joseph, um, you know, we, 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 we want to recognize that we don't just accept what Potiphar's wife said here. Joseph was a righteous man and he did the godly thing and she fabricated a story. And so that's certainly possible. And we need to recognize that that's a possibility uh, in the world today as well. A second reason why people sometimes bear false witness against their neighbors, because of greed. Maybe there's some financial gain that we hope to receive as a result of saying something false against our neighbor. And again, that could be something said in a court of law in which we're suing a person and we're making a claim about what they've done in order to try to enrich ourselves. Or perhaps maybe we know we've done wrong and we want to defend ourselves. So we, we lie about the, the, um, the person who's bringing the charge. There's any number of ways that this can go. But the, again, requirement of God's law for the believer is that we speak the truth in such matters, but it's not always something that might just be uh, reserved for the court of law. It might be that we would, Um, think that if I say something to the boss about my rival at work, I'll get the promotion ahead of him. Um, Or maybe even get this person fired, get the boss fired, and I'll be the next in line to assume that position. And in that case, it might not be that we hate them so much as we just want what they have. We're greedy for it. And so we reach out and we take it by means of telling a lie. We talked last week about Ahab and Jezebel and stealing. But it's interesting how stealing and bearing false witness so often go hand in hand, greed and false witness. And in this story, as I told you last time, uh, there was a man by the name of Naboth who had a vineyard nearby the palace where Ahab was king. And he wanted that piece of land for himself, Ahab did. And so he couldn't get Naboth to sell it to him in a proper transaction. And so, he and his wife Jezebel conspired to get false witnesses to say something uh, uh, about uh, Naboth that would get him killed, and once he's killed, they could take possession of his land. That's exactly what happens. And it says, here's the way they went about doing it. In 1 Kings 21, beginning in verse 12, they, that's Ahab and Jezebel, proclaimed a fast and then a feast. And they seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people, then two scoundrels, because that's the kind of person who perjures themselves, who bears false witness Two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. So in this particular case, we see that there's two scoundrels who no doubt were paid off by Ahab and Jezebel. And you have Ahab and Jezebel who have suborned perjury. That is, they have gotten these false witnesses to to give their lie in order to eliminate Naboth so that they can get the material possession that they wanted. And while we might, hopefully, you and I, not go to the extremes of 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 Ahab and Jezebel, we need to guard our hearts very carefully that we don't say things about other people whom we consider rivals so that we can get an advantage on them, so that we can get something that they want and use our words to create a fiction in order to make them look bad or elevate ourselves and because of greed, bear false witness against our neighbor. The third reason for this is envy we see that somebody, and this isn't about a material possession, but it's maybe a reputation that somebody has. Um, there's something about them that we wish that we had and, and, and we, we can't get it. And so what's the best way to besmirch them, to rub dirt on them so that they won't shine so brightly? Well, to the sinful human mind, it is well. we'll say things about them, we'll slander them, we'll bring false accusation against them. And that will bring them down. Even if it won't elevate us, at least they won't be standing up here above us. Now, the seriousness of this uh, is illustrated not only again in the story of Joseph with his brothers, but most point, uh, most, most powerfully, it's presented before us in the, in the instance of the Lord Jesus himself. This is how Jesus got killed because the high priests and the leaders of the people went out and they suborned perjurers, scoundrels, to say things about Jesus that weren't exactly so. And they had a hard time doing it, Mark tells us, because they couldn't get their witnesses to get their story straight. And they kept struggling to try to get multiple witnesses to corroborate their testimony so that they could condemn Jesus. But in the end, they felt like they had succeeded in doing so and they were able to take their case before the Gentile ruler over them, a man by the name of Pilate. And here's what we're told that Pilate recognized in Matthew 27, 18. He knew that it was out of envy that they, that is the religious leaders who brought Jesus before him, that they had handed Jesus over to him because of envy. Jesus had something that the high priests and the leaders and rulers of God's people didn't have. They didn't have a relationship with the Father like he did. They didn't have the admiration of the people like Jesus did. They couldn't perhaps perform the miracles that Jesus did, in in any number of things. there There were all kinds of things about Jesus that they wanted and they couldn't get for themselves. And so they decided the thing to do is just eliminate him by bringing up these charges against him and get him condemned in a court of law. This is a horrific thing. And in fact, it takes us all the way back to the beginning where Satan told a lie that Eve about God, that Eve believed and brought all of this calamity upon the world. It's also the way that this story reaches its climax when Satan is working in the hearts of these people to say false things about the truest person who ever lived. And anytime we begin to gossip, anytime we begin to slander or say and speak evil of our neighbor, saying things that aren't so out of an envy or malice or out of a greed, then we are showing a paternity. It's a paternity test. Who's your father? Is it the God of all truth? Or is it the father of lies who comes to kill, to steal? and to destroy. We must guard our tongues carefully and check ourselves and our motives each time we begin to speak about others and make sure that it's not malice, it's not greed, and it's not envy that is inspiring us to speak as we do. Well, not only do we need to be aware of the whys of false accusation, but we need to be aware of the ways of false accusation? What are the ways in which we bear false witness or testimony against our neighbor? Well, a few of these include silence. We know something about another person who's being spoken evil of that would vindicate them, but we don't really like them. Or we stand to gain some advantage if everybody thinks less of them. And so instead of speaking up for them, we just remain silent and let others think what they will of that person. Or maybe we know that a person's guilty, but maybe it's to our advantage that they be found innocent. And so we withhold testimony that we ought to bring to bear on the situation. And so we can lie through our silence and we need to be aware of that. Secondly, by dropping hints or asking Sort of provocative questions. I wonder how he really got all his money. Or doesn't it seem strange how much time the boss spends with the secretary? And then we don't really have anything solid to say about it. I don't even know perhaps what it is we're trying to gain by it, but we throw these kinds of things out there and walk away just letting it do its work in other people's minds. And this is a way of slandering our neighbor, even though we may technically be able to say, well, I didn't say the boss was sleeping with the secretary. I I just asked the question, what's in our hearts? And then we can also impugn people's motives. Somebody does a good deed. And we say, I wonder why they really did that. They're just trying to butter up to so-and-so by doing that. They're just, you know, it's just a, this is just a um, a self-image ploy. They're just trying to make themselves look good to the press. This is a, a press opportunity for this person to do this good deed. And so we say these kinds of things about them when we really don't know what's in their heart. And so all of these are ways and many more beside that we can in roundabout ways commit the sin that's being forbidden here in the ninth commandment. And we must be on guard against that as well. Well, as we uh, wrap up, I want to make this point very strongly, if possible. And that is, it's not only wrong to make false accusations. I think we've established that and we could have gone on for hours, literally about all the Bible has to say about this. But it's also wrong to believe a false accusation. You know, in order for lies to really spread through a community of people, whether it's a church, a a family, extended family, a workplace, a nation, in order for those liars, those false accusers to be able to spread their lies, there has to be a market for it. There have to be people willing to listen to that. And the reality is that the the Bible, as I mentioned earlier, gives us some very important um, guidelines, not just guidelines, but rules for evidence. Before we believe an accusation about another person, we need to have corroborating testimonies. In other words, nowhere in the Bible is one person able to come and bring a charge against another person, and that settles the matter. Two or three witnesses are required. Some form of corroborating evidence is what that means. It could be DNA evidence. It could be other circumstances that establish that this person's testimony is true. It Could be cameras or whatever the case might be. There needs to be something beyond the words of one person. Even if they're telling the truth, even if they're a trustworthy person, it's not sufficient evidence to condemn another, either in law or perhaps even in our own way of thinking about that person as best we can, simply on the basis of what somebody said. You know, when somebody says something bad about a friend or someone that's on our side of the aisle politically or religiously, we tend to dismiss what that person says. But if they're on the other side of that, It doesn't even matter if the witness who's telling this about that person is credible or not. We just believe it. And that says a much more about us as the hearers of it than it does about the person who's making the accusation. Here's the point. God says, don't do that. And we also need to have uh, the person who's been accused have opportunity to defend themselves. And in fact, we're told uh, that that person should be able to do so in the presence of the person bringing the accusation. I believe it's in the book of Proverbs that we're told that it is folly. It is a foolishness for a person to hear one's, uh, to hear an accusation and just embrace it and believe it without hearing the response of the person accused. Because you know, the fact of the matter is we are like Eve We're all sons and daughters of Eve and we are easily deceived. And so we can hear something and sometimes think, wow, I mean, that's rock solid. And then we hear the other person. We're like, Oh, okay. Well now I see that that there's a much larger context in which what this other person was telling me, uh, that, that it all took place in, and that changes everything. And so we need to recognize that. We need to recognize our own fallibility and and our own tendency toward believing false accusation and the reasons why we might want to believe something that's not true. And not only for saying it, but hearing it, it could be malice, could be greed, could be envy, could be any number of reasons. But in order for false accusations to work, there has to be people willing to listen. And one of the things that you and I can do is refuse to use our mouths to do the work of the devil and spread dissension among people. And we can also refuse to have Satan in our ear as well as in our mouth and refuse to hear that, which cannot be substantiated by biblical criteria. Well, those are the things that I think are all involved in the commandment, the ninth commandment. You shall not... Make a false accusation against your neighbor. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And kids at home, you can begin practicing this with your brothers and sisters. Never, ever, ever, ever tell your parents a lie about something that your brother or sister did so you can get yourself out of trouble or get them into trouble. Learn while you're young to tell the truth and that's going to serve you well all the days of your life and not put you in a position where you're at odds with your father in heaven. Remember your Lord Jesus Christ was crucified because men said things about him that weren't true and people were willing to believe it. Don't follow the example of those who crucified your Lord. Let's end tonight with a prayer. Would you bow with me, please? Our Father and our God, how grateful we are to you for your goodness, your kindness and mercy that you've poured out abundantly upon us through your son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, he is the very embodiment of truth, and he is our defender and advocate, not our accuser and condemner. And so, Father, we pray that as we follow after him, you'll help us to be a people who speak the truth, who listen to the truth, and who have the wisdom to discern truth from falsehood so that we can treat people rightly in this world. Father, our country Our culture, in some cases, our families and churches need to begin to abide by and apply, apply more carefully the rules of evidence that you've given us to follow in Scripture about discerning what's right and wrong, what's true and what's false. Help us to do that. And as we do, we ask that you would give us the peace that comes from doing so. We love you, Father. We thank you for caring for us. And we pray your strength upon everyone who's listening in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen.